15 guys did pretty good. You guys did really well there, though. That's, that's pretty solid. Um, the last time I actually uh, preached here at the well uh, was about a month and a half ago. I'd only been here for about four weeks. So when I got up here, literally nobody knew me, which is a unique situation to be in. Uh, thankfully, since then, I think I've gotten to know a lot of you guys. Uh, but for those of you that, that don't know me still, which is completely fine, you're missing out, but it's no big deal. Um, my name's Josh Guerrero. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at The Well, and I'm also a church planning resident, so me and my wife, Rachel, are going to go plant a church in South Austin in the future out of this church. Um, I mentioned my wife, Rachel. Uh, she is truly my hero. We've been married for about two and a half years. Um, I heard someone do awe, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Shout out, babe. Love you. Um, and one of the reasons I mentioned that is because the last time I preached, one of the reasons it's been uh, quite a bit of time is because that very night, that, that very Sunday evening, my wife went into labor and gave birth to our, our first child, a little girl named Leah Grace Grell. Good shout out. My dude, my dude, I'm, I'm learning so many new things, like the fact that people actually think their kid is the greatest. Like, I thought people said that, but like, it's actually something you really think. Like, I'm like saying stuff like, man, my daughter holds her head up so well. Like... That's not even something to be proud of, but for me, for whatever reason, it's just like, oh, man, she's so great. <laughs> Coming back to what we actually need to talk about, so way off. Coming back. Um, we're continuing our series uh, in the miracles of Luke today, all right? So uh, we're actually discussing today the miracle of provision, okay? The miracle of provision, God's provision, specifically through the text of Luke 9, which is Jesus feeding the, the 5,000, 5,000 men, okay? Now, to, to, to really study and to look into uh, the miracle of provision is important because we live in a culture that tells us we have to gauge our success by how self-sufficient we are. How, I can know that I'm successful when I'm officially be able to look around at everybody else and go, I don't need you. And this has actually created some good things in some ways because, man, our culture produces one heck of a work ethic, right? Like people hear that they need to not need anyone else and they start working like crazy. It's, what, it's what's really fueled like the economic and industrial innovation that we've seen in America for the past like 200 years, right? It's what's fueled that and the work ethic is insane. It's great, it gets stuff done because work isn't appalling to God, work is actually glorifying to God. So a strong work ethic is awesome, but underneath it, what fuels that? is self-sufficiency, and that idea that I don't need anyone actually directly contradicts the gospel and the message of the gospel. And so today, as we look through the text, what I really hope we land at, and the big idea I hope we walk away with, is this, that, I'm going to put that up real fast. There we go. God calls us to depend on him, thus denying self-sufficiency, to provide everything we need on earth and in heaven, for now and for eternity. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. Our ushers are actually coming forward with some Bibles. If you don't have one at home, they're going to give you one. If you don't have one at home, please take that. All right, take that. That's our gift to you. You want your, your eyes in the scriptures. Go read it at home. Bring it back. Not to give back to us, but because you're actually reading it, right? Like, praise the Lord. In addition to that, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you just hit that sandwich board or sandwich menu type thing. It's going to pop down. Just select events, select the well. You can track with the notes there. If you just want to plug this into your browser, this will take you to, to, to the YouVersion page where you actually can track with all the notes as well, okay? 
So I'm going to go ahead and jump in. We're in Luke 9. We're going to start in uh, verse 10. Get there real quick, sorry. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. On their return, the apostles told them that all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a, count, to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, which means with women and children, that could have been 20 30,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Uh, let's go ahead and pray before we dive in, okay? Father, thank you so much. Uh, for your word, ask that even now you would remove uh, anything that prevents us from hearing what you would have for us, Lord, um, that you would remove me and any desires I have to speak what, what I would want, only to speak what you desire, what uh, your people need. We love you. We thank you. I ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we dive into the text, one of the things that I want to do is kind of just set some backdrop, some backdrop, some context. Um, all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, it's, it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to look at just one or two texts and say, this is what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop some kind of meaning or lesson out of this without looking at what's going on around it. It's just, it's safer because it actually helps us to know what the Lord wants us to, to actually take from the text. And here, it's more than just treating these seven texts. It would really take exploring the entirety of Luke 9, which would need almost the entirety of the book of Luke. Now, we're not going to do that today, all right? Deep breaths. It's okay. But we do want to set just a little bit of backdrop so we know what's going on here. Okay, the first verse in 10, it says the apostles returned to Jesus. Where are they returning from? In the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus actually sends his disciples out on a mission. He tells them to go and to preach the kingdom and in addition, to heal the sick. But when he sends them, he says, I don't want you to take a bag, a rod, an extra pair of clothes, sandals. I don't want you to take anything. Nothing common to the day of, for self-provision was taken. They just went out and did their thing. Now, in addition to that, right before this text, in a different place, King Herod, the, the Roman municipal king who's, who's king over that region, is asking a very specific question right before this text starts. And that question is, who is Jesus? Now, he has a couple of responses. He's heard the testimonies of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and all the miracles that are happening. And he says, maybe he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or maybe he's Elijah, or maybe one of the other prophets. The question is, man, who is this Jesus? Maybe he's a prophet from God that we need to actually take serious. So while that's going on, it leads us into where we are today, where the apostles are returning from their mission. Okay, returning to Jesus. This is where we're getting started, okay? Now, as the apostles are returning, they get back. Apparently, they did some really cool things, all right? They went out, they had no bag, no nothing to provide for themselves. They went out, they preached the gospel. The Bible says that they had cast out demons. In, in, in Mark, it actually has a, an, an account of this exact 
uh, situation where it, he actually says that they're saying we cast out demons, we healed people, people came back to life. Uh, maybe not came back to life. That was wrong. Sorry. <laughs> he just healed people and cast out demons. Um, he gets back, or the apostles get back, and right away they look at Jesus and they're like, man, praise God. No, wait, that's not what happened. Sorry. Um, they look back and they think to themselves, man, we could have done nothing without. That's not what they say either, actually. They get back and the first thing they do is proclaim to Jesus all the things that they had done. Right off the bat. All the things that they had done. Now, I get why that would be, you know, the, the instinct here. Because when I do something that defies logic, I'm ready to come back and tell everybody. I'm ready to just be like, guys, you'll never guess what I did, man. I got fooled off of like a dollar at McDonald's, right? This, is like, this defies all the odds, man. Like this is impossible in most places. But yet, I, if I defy the odds, most of the time it fills me with this desire to come and say, hey, man, look what I did. But what they miss is the fact that when Jesus sent them out with absolutely nothing besides the clothes they had on, and his blessing to go and teach the kingdom and heal the sick, that miraculous things happen, not because of how awesome they were, but because when he sent them, he wanted to show that he's the provider. He's the provision both of what we need tangibly, my clothes, what I need for provisions, but also supernaturally, spiritually. He's the provider for all of it. Yet they miss that mark when they come back and just go, man, Jesus, check out all the things we did. Now, the reason underneath it is that the apostles were enjoying something that I think we all really enjoy. And that's that they were probably getting some love and affection. They were probably getting some glory. Maybe they were a little bit noteworthy from this. And literally, because they're desiring their own glory, the result is that they're not desiring God's. Or maybe that they're just desiring theirs a little bit more. Now, this shouldn't be surprising that the apostles might be in this position because this actually is not foreign to the story of humanity. If we follow the thread of this exact action, this desire for us to be known, for us to be held in high esteem, it, it threads its way all the way back to the beginning in Adam and Eve when God also looked at Adam and Eve and said, go out, make culture, build buildings, do it to my glory as my ambassador made in my image. Yet the temptation when the enemy came was not, hey, you shouldn't do any of that. The temptation was like, hey, eat this fruit and you'll be like God. Right? No longer was the mission going to be about glorifying God. The mission was still intact. They were going to go out and do it. That's how we got all this stuff today. But at the same time, the mission no longer was fueled by a desire to see God glorified. It was fueled by the desire to see man glorified. That's why just a couple of chapters later, they start building uh, the Tower of Babel, where it's literally so that they can get up to heaven and show God that they're equal. So this same thread begins to, to weave its way through all of humanity, and it's, that's the reason that self-sufficiency is so dangerous. You see, because working in tandem with self-sufficiency is the desire that I would be glorified, that I would be lifted up. Because once I'm lifted up, once I'm made much of, and I realize that I'm just a hair bigger and a hair better and a hair more awesome than everyone else, I now know that I don't need anyone else because I'm just a hair better than everyone else. In fact, other people might need me. Now, as I mentioned, this, this thread kind of has gone through humanity. And, and even today, right, looking out into a room this large with, with this many people in it, I can guarantee you that whether believer or unbeliever, this is a thread that we all struggle with. 
This is a thread of sin and a feeling we all struggle with. It could be the farthest of unbelievers are the most passionate about Jesus, and we all wrestle with this feeling of wanting to be made much of and wanting to be the center stage. You know, it, it could be the unbeliever that just rejects God and goes, man, I don't believe in who you are. I reject your control. I reject the, thing, the thought that you're the provider, and I want myself to be the one who takes control of my own life and forge some type of, of life that's going to be remembered. It could also be people who believe, but, man, they, they want to earn the fact that they're worthy of what God's given us, right? God's blessed us, man. Like, all of us are here. Like, most of us drove here, and if you didn't drive here, you had a bike or, like, 50 cents for the bus or something. Like, you know, like, man, God provided that. Yet, no matter what, even when we're a believer, sometimes we wrestle with the desire of being like, man, I want to prove that I'm actually worthy of the blessings God's given me. Could be the student that, you know, is, is fighting so hard because they feel some type of value associated with graduating summa cum laude, right? And if you graduated summa cum laude, bless you. That wasn't me. I graduated, thank you, my laude. That's what I graduated. I, I, I barely got by on that bad boy. Regardless of that, even going to the closest of us, though, right, the, the, the ones that are supposed to be passionate about Jesus, even like the pastor who, while preparing this very sermon, was like, man, I really hit that point, man. Like, I killed that mess right there. I, 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 that's the thread of us wanting to glorify ourselves at work in our lives all the time. And it's a constant fight. It's a constant, constant threat. Now, at the end of it, we want our lives to matter. That, that's what fuels so much of that desire, right? And I get that. We want to be remembered. We want to have some measure of, of influence and impact on the world. But what ends up happening is that desire mixed with our sinful desire to see us made much of, we end up taking the gifts that God has given us to glorify him. We end up desiring or using those to glorify ourselves and rob God of the glory, rob God of what he's due because he provided. If we're honest and we just have to look at just a really, really blunt look in the mirror back at us, We'll come to find out that there's a lot of us that have found ourselves in that very place and we're wrestling with that right now, today. There's someone earlier that was like, yeah, man, during worship, like, we're singing and, like, I don't want to just fit in the crowd, so I start harmonizing so everyone around me can hear me sing. That seems small until you realize I want to sound better and be more noticed than the person next to me. Not so that God could be lifted up in my worship, but so that I could be noticed even as I'm worshiping him. That type of little subtle thing is what we all struggle with, what we all fight with. If we're honest, some of us are there. And returning to the text, I believe that this is where the, the apostles were as well. Right? Sitting there, they, 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 they came back. They wanted to share all the things that, that they'd done. That's cool. That's great. And when they get back and they, they, they completely ignore the fact that Jesus provided, right? And they jump into the fact that they've done all these cool things. The response from Jesus is not a sigh and a correction, Right? In true Jesus fashion, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, hey, why don't we go to a desolate place and have intimate fellowship with each other? Man, that's incredible that God's response to me trying to steal away his glory is actually him saying, hey, why don't we go spend more time together? Man, that's awesome. That's the character of God at work. I don't know if he was actually taking them to say, hey, guys, what I really wanted you to figure out is that you couldn't have done any of that without me. Or... If he was going just to be like, man, let's just show you a little bit more of who I am. But regardless, it actually didn't get there. The Bible in our 10 through 17, Luke 9, 10 through 7, tells us that as they went, the crowd started hearing where Jesus was going. They started following. And so this massive crowd began to form. 
And the Bible says that Jesus, looking at the crowd, began to teach about the kingdom and heal the sick. If that sounds familiar, it's because just a few verses before, Jesus was telling the disciples, the apostles, go and teach the kingdom and heal the sick, but don't take anything with you. If they were wise, the apostles, they would have looked at Jesus and gone, man, he's doing the thing that we did. Like, we're just extensions of who he is. Man, without him, we can't do anything. He's modeling the thing we're supposed to do. But I'm not sure that's what they actually thought. I have this feeling, this isn't the text, I'm reading into it here. Okay, I have this feeling, though, that they looked at Jesus and went, man, it, he's healing people. I healed people. He's teaching about the kingdom. I taught about the kingdom. Maybe he is a prophet that everyone's saying he is. And maybe he's, you know, inviting us to be prophets with him. Maybe we're equal. Maybe we're not. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that the apostles, I think they had something there. And the evidence of that is found when they come to Jesus as the day, as the day wears off. And they don't come to him and say, Jesus, we know you got everything under control, but the day's getting long. And these people got to eat and we're in the desert. So it might be a good idea to send them to go get some food and shelter. They didn't come to Jesus respectfully and go, God, can you please uh, maybe send them away? Because we're getting hungry. Everybody's kind of hungry. We don't have enough food to feed everybody. They come to Jesus and go, Jesus, send them away. Because we don't have food to feed these people. They need to go get provisions in the countryside and the villages and such. You see, because if we're the same... I've done some miracles, you've done some miracles, I've healed, you've healed. I look at this group and go, you know, I can't feed that many, and therefore you can't either. It's the classic human scenario of us seeing our problem and then looking at God and be like, this is how you should take care of this. I know you're God and everything, but man, if I was God, right? <laughs> if on the, off the offshoot chance I was God, this is how I would handle it, and I'm sure it would go great. As they go to Jesus, they, they tell him what to do. Uh, Jesus doesn't, in, again, true Jesus fashion, go, oh, gosh, you're right. I'm sorry. Man, he looks them dead in the eye. Looks them dead in the eye. I'm assuming there was no humor behind it because they didn't take it as a joke. He looks them dead in the eye and goes, you feed them. And in that moment, what really fuels self-glorification, what really fuels the desire to be self-sufficient, what really fuels those actions comes to the surface, and that's the fear of being inadequate. The fear of just not being enough. And I'm sure that as the disciples looked back and saw their little basket with five loaves of fish, I mean five loaves of bread, and two fish, they had the exact same feeling that every dad or husband has when he looks at the bank account and is unsure if he's going to meet to the end of the month for his family. It's the same feeling every mother has when she looks at her kid losing it and she has that deep-seated insecurity of what am I doing wrong? Am I not doing something right? Am I going to mess up my kids? It's the same feeling that every student has when they have graduated, they go out and start applying for some jobs and they get no, no, no. No, no. And eventually, it doesn't become a bad market. What it becomes is, man, is there something wrong with me? It's every single child that's ever looked at that perfectionist parent and gone, man, I just want you to be proud of me. It's 
the voice that echoes in our mind that says, you're not good enough. And it's a voice we struggle with. And we struggle with it because it's, it's this cold reminder that, man, there's something out there that we just can't reach. It's this cold reminder that there's something out there that we just can't attain no matter how hard we grasp, no matter how hard we reach, we just can't get it. It's a cold reminder of Romans 6.23 that says, man, there's God in all his glory and then there's everyone else who's sinned. And there's everyone else who's sinned and fallen short of how majestic and beautiful God is. Now, I think one of the reasons, or one of the reasons we struggle with that concept, that there's something out there that we just can't attain, that there's a God out there that we just can't be like, is because the actual action when we're trying to be self-sufficient, the actual action when we're trying to glorify ourselves is that we would try to lift ourselves up just enough for someone to worship me. I just want to be looked at as special, right? This is, this is kind of the, the wording we use, right? I just want to know that I matter, right? I just want to know that I, like, made a difference. I want to know that I made an impact. But twisted somewhere deep down in that is this deep-rooted sinful thing that all humanity carries that's really saying, man, I want people to look at me and hold me in such high esteem that they worship me a little bit. And that may be more subtle for the believer than it is for the unbeliever, right? We can look at someone that doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Jesus, and go, yeah, sure, that's true. But it's so much more subtle when, when someone who's a believer says, man, I want God to be glorified. I want him to be lifted up. But maybe not more than me. And I'll be completely honest with you guys. Man, at the end of this, I hope that God is glorified when, when we're done talking today. But man, so much of me also wants me to be known. So much of me also wants you guys to go up and go, hey man, great job. Don't do it. You don't got to do it. That's not like an obligatory, like, please tell me I'm good. Like, you know, it's not that. But man, I'm letting you into, even, even me, my desires, what I'm going through right now, I'm fighting that. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night and just was like, God, man, please let me be my, take my mind off of me, God. Take my mind off of me, Please. It's, a, it's, it's just an innate sinful desire that we all wrestle with. But the deal is when we start wrestling with it and when we start succumbing to it, what ends up happening is that we begin to sow the seeds of our own godhood. We begin to sow the seeds of our own worth and worthiness to be worshipped. And what ends up coming back is guilt and shame and insecurity and feeling of inadequacy. What ends up coming back is when I, when I sow the expectations that I would be big enough to know that I'm able to be worshipped, what ends up happening is I sow the seeds of someone going, man, you messed that up. And then me going, no, I didn't. I didn't mess that up. It's, it's, it's his fault. I'm going to deflect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt relationships. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel the weight of my own guilt, shame, and insecurity. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt me because a good dad I might be able to be. And a good mom, some of you guys who are moms, you might be able to be. You know, a good student, I can get summa cum laude or whatever. I don't know if the world doesn't flow you the month, but I might be able to get that, <laughs> right? What I won't ever be able to get, though, what's unobtainable is that I would be a good God. The reality becomes that, man, I'm just not good enough for that. 
I'm just not good enough for that. I'm not worthy of being worshipped. I'm not, I'm not. And then friends, hear me with care and love here. Hear me with care and love here, please. Take a deep breath, right? You're not either. You're not either. You will never be enough to be worshipped as though you are God because we are not. Only He is. We're going to fail. We're going to stumble. We're going to mess up. Those are not moments that should impact how deeply we value ourselves or, or, or how deeply, well, how we see ourselves. Because, man, if the only way that should impact you that much is if you see yourself as God. So that can be where we find ourselves, absolutely. And this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of possibly self-worship, this feeling of possible idolatry is where the apostles find themselves. Except for Jesus doesn't look back at them. And again, in true Jesus fashion, he doesn't correct them. He, he, he corrects them, but he doesn't do it abrasively. He doesn't do it without graciousness. He doesn't do it unkindly. He simply looks at them holding the, the just fragments of what could possibly feed these people combined with maybe some of the brokenness and inadequacy they feel, and he simply looks at them and says, give me what you have. Put what you have, that little bit, in my hand. The Bible says that Jesus takes that, that inadequacy, that little that they need, that little that they have, which is far less than they need, he blesses it, prays to God, then he gives it back to them and says, now go feed 20, 30,000 people. They took their inadequacy, gave it to Jesus, and he gave it back to them as something abundant. Their brokenness in his hands returned for abundance. And then they start distributing the bread out, right? They start distributing the fish out. And the Bible doesn't say how this happened. But, man, I can only imagine what it was actually like. You know, when they're like, okay, bro, that was like five loaves. Why is, why is there 15 loaves left? What the... Where did that come? Did someone add something to that? That was, there's two fish there, but there's like eight fish over there too. Hold on, like what's going on? And I'm sure even then they were probably like breaking bread and it like thought they were going to see a half, but as they broke it, they looked left and right and there was like two pieces of full bread and they're like, what in the world? But as this begins to happen, they start to see that, man, this person's eating and that person's eating and this whole group is eating, that whole thousand is eating, that whole, you know, 10,000 is eating. What's going on here? And as everybody finishes eating, as everybody has had their fill and is now calling out to the apostles and saying, hey, hey, come, man, we're done. We can't eat no more. This is basically a buffet. Like, I'm done. Like, I'm just, I can't breathe anymore, man. Like, please come get this bread. They begin to pile up the leftovers and they set them down. And all of a sudden it's one, two, man, we have 12 baskets of leftovers and there's 12 of us. Man, we gave our little brokenness to Jesus and he returned with an entire basket of food for each of us. Man, and these good little Jewish boys, right? What would have been happening in this moment is they would have been looking at Jesus and a couple of other things would have been swirling around in the background for them. One would have been the fact that they would have looked at him and thought, man, Moses, right, this is our, one of our great prophets, maybe our greatest prophet. He provided manna in the wilderness. Like, 
Man, he provided water from the rock in the wilderness, right? All this stuff. But one of the things they would have also been thinking about, maybe even more parallels and even more uh, zoned into what was going on, was a prophet named Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, this is what the author writes, A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread for the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. And so as these, like I mentioned, good young Jewish boys are looking at Jesus do this miracle, something swirling in the background would have been like, man, He's like fulfilling the things that the prophets did. He's providing. He's, he's, he's providing food out of little, and then it's becoming leftovers. Like, but it's not just like what the prophets did. It's, it's, it seems so much bigger than that. It seems so much greater than that. You see, because Elijah had his 20 and 100, but, man, God made a Lunchable into like 30,000. Like, this is, man, like, this is, so, this is so immensely bigger than what Elijah could have imagined doing. And then our mind rushes back over to Herod. It should. That's what Luke's, I think, trying to do here. When, when Herod's saying, who is Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Or is he one of the other prophets? Is he a prophet? Is he, if he, is he someone that's heralding a message from God as a prophet? And, and Jesus knows and understands, no, I'm, I'm not a prophet. I'm, I'm the prophet. I'm the one that they've all talked about. I'm not a messenger from God. I, I am God. And he knows this is where the disciples need to get. So as they're collecting their, their food, in uh, verse 18, Jesus says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, right? And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And similarly, right, the crowds are like, Man, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's one of the prophets because he's doing things that prophets do. And he says, but you guys, you, who do you say that I am? And I could imagine them having just seen this miraculous thing, having seen their five loaves and two fish turn into each one of them sitting there with a basket full of food, looking down at it, looking back up at him and just going, you're the Christ, you're God, you're greater than we could have ever imagined and greater than anything they could have done. And in that moment, the great gap, the great gap of beauty, the great gap of righteousness, of glory, of, of worthiness to be praised is established, right? You're God, I'm not. I can't feed. Man, that, that Lunchable was basically enough to feed like them 12, so they couldn't have fed like 20. And you fed 20,000 from what we had. You're not just a prophet. You're God Almighty, the Messiah, the Christ sent from God. Because Jesus needed to know that that gap is important for us to see and understand. Because as we become familiar with that gap, what we think the gap consists of is us failing at being a husband or failing at being a father or a mother or, or whatever else it is or a student or a kid or whatever. 
But what God understood, what God understands, what Christ was offering is that that gap may show itself there, but the fuel, what actually separates is sin. Sin to rebel against God, to not want to admit that he is who he is, and sin that, 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 that we end up participating in that corrupts the good plan that God has for the world. And so as I see God and as him being God and I confess that I'm not God, then I'm able then to say, and what you have said about me and what you have said about the world and what the world needs, I affirm that that is true. And it's no sooner that Paul, I mean that Peter, uh, that the apostles, sorry, um, confess that, man, you're God and I'm not, and that gap is real, that Jesus responds with how that gap is closed. And he strictly charged and commanded them, tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, him, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected. You feel rejected? I'll take your rejection. I'll take that on myself. I'm the only one worthy to actually be accepted. But for you, I'll take rejection by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. But on the third day, I will rise. And honestly, as I read that earlier this week, I was like typing out what I was thinking. And as I was preparing, I legitimately was just like, man, I don't think I can articulate that as well as I actually jotted it down. And um, not because it's so great, more because I was stumbling around it a lot. <laughs> so I'm just going to read what I jotted down regarding that. That you see, sin may have caused the divide between us and God. It may have been sin that drives the desire to see us glorified instead of God. It may be sin that drives the inadequacy we all fear. But it's the grace of God taking the cross and taking the punishment for our sins that closes that divide. When sin called to have its consequences fulfilled, it was Jesus who answered the call. His sacrifice that brings creation back to creator and allows us to have a relationship with him. It's there that we begin to hear the beautiful cries of God's grace that we're whole, we're healed, we're enough. We've been made new, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Inadequacy is erased. The voice saying you're not good enough, that's silence because Jesus is enough. And it's through his righteousness and his doing that I am affirmed without question. And now every moment that I sin, every moment I fail, every moment I stumble, I'm able to not look at myself and go, man, I'm made less, but I'm able now to look at him and go, man, and because he has graciously forgiven me, he's made more. Paul Tripp said it like this, um, and I think he, in this two sentences, he said everything I said, just made your hair better. <laughs> He said, the cross makes a way for the one who is everything that you're not to become for you and in you everything that you need. Everything that you need. Today, there's, um, there's a couple of, couple of groups of people in here, right, that, that constitute this, this size of a room. And that is... Uh, one who believes and confesses that this is true 
and one that doesn't. What unites us is that we all struggle with what we just talked about. We all have that struggle. And so as we've heard this today, one of the questions uh, I think we're asking, I hope we're asking, and if you're thinking it, then uh, yes, I hope you, I hope you are thinking it, because it leads me right into my, my ending here, and that's that, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I, I believe, I don't believe, whatever it is, something, I'm hearing something today, and I, I think that it's true, and, and Jesus answers it beautifully. Uh, Beautifully, at the end of our text here, the end of chapter 9, he simply looks at his disciples and says this. Oh, wait, let me get there. Oh, man, guys, I'm in like Luke. Sorry. He ends up looking and saying, if anyone comes to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what do we do today? Well, if you're a believer and you know that you've been wrestling with desire to see you prove yourself, that you have so much of your own value, so much of your own worth wrapped up in the fact that you're able and sufficient, self-sufficient, then, man, brother, sister, friend, repent and turn to Jesus and rest in his grace. Walk away here not thinking I have to go do something, but thinking let me stop, remember, and just praise God for what he's done. Hold your head high because he loves you. Take up your cross and follow him. Now, if you are in the other spot that I mentioned today, that you look at this God and, and you've said, man, I don't believe that that exists, but something in you today has gone, man, you know what? I, uh, Whatever is going on right here, this, is, this seems true. I encourage you to do the very things the disciples did, which is to herald and declare you are God and I am not. And as you also, friend, take up your cross and follow Jesus, that may look like going to a community group this week. It may look like finding someone next to you and simply asking them, please help me and keep me accountable reading the Bible. Please be my friend. It may just look like coming back to church next week but do that, please. Um, as we close, I want to go ahead and pray for us. Um, and as uh, we pray, the guy's going to come back up. Uh, just meditate on how good God is, the grace that we can rest in, in him. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you are lifted high, God, and that as you're lifted high, no longer is the voice of the accuser telling us that we're not good enough or that we 